talking all, all morning long now about God as faithful as our rock, uh, the one who will never forsake us, and the one who has a firm foundation beneath our feet. And perhaps uh, there's no better or at least more famous passage in the Bible that teaches us that than Romans chapter 8, um, particularly the last dozen verses or so. So if you will, turn to Romans 8, uh, I believe page 1132 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be reading beginning in verse 28, and we'll read all the way down through to the end of the chapter. We'll read 8, 28 through 39, and then we're going to focus our attention this morning on verse 32. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we come to this passage that is a word to those who struggle, to those who suffer with persecution or just with hunger, with worry, with need, to those who struggle with sin and wonder if they'll be condemned in the end. God, for anyone who is needy and hungry and thirsty and struggling And even for those who are those things and don't yet realize it, this passage is wonderful truth for us. So as we focus in just on one verse of the passage today, speak to us, help us. God, fill us uh, who are hungry, slake our thirst. Those who are worried and fearful, give them courage. And for all of us, show your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness to us in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. As I said, we are going to focus this morning on verse 32. For some of you, it will be quite familiar. I'm quoting it often. For others of you, perhaps this will be the first time you've ever read it. But whether you're reading it for the first time or whether you're hearing it for the umpteenth time, it's a wonderful, wonderful verse. It's a wonderful reminder of God's faithfulness if you know it already. And it's a wonderful indication of God's faithfulness if you don't know the faithfulness of God yet. Perhaps this is the verse above all other verses that I would take someone to, to show them that God is faithful, that he will meet his people who trust him, and he will meet their needs. So the verse says, again, he, God, 
who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's a wonderful verse. And again, we turn to this verse, or or we, we can turn to this verse when we find ourselves in the waiting room at the hospital or in the bed at the hospital ourselves. We can turn to this verse when we're sitting at the funeral home. We can turn to this verse when we're looking at the checkbook and wondering how we're going to make it these last nine days of the month. We can turn to this verse when we're at 30,000 feet and they turn the fasten seatbelt sign on, which maybe gives you an indication of one of the places where I worked on this sermon this last week. In all those times when we're worried, whether it's big worries or just I'm afraid of heights, whether it's the checkbook or whether it's someone in our lives has been told by the doctor that they will only live for a few more months, whether we're in the waiting room expecting good news at the hospital or whether we're in the waiting room getting bad news at the hospital. In all those times and all the other minor frets and fits and starts in between, what a wonderful verse to go to, to remember that God, who didn't spare his own son, if he didn't spare his own son, then surely he will also freely, with his son, give us everything else that we need. This verse promises so much, doesn't it? All things. There's no limit to that, is there? He will freely give us all things, everything that we need. And if you were to just sit and meditate, it really defies imagination to to try to list all things, to try to think of all that this verse actually promises us, all the blessings that are here. It defies imagination, but we should imagine, and not just imagine, but think about the reality of what God promises us in this verse and just let our minds sort of muse and consider all the blessings that belong to us if we trust God. All the blessings that God might pull out of the treasure chest of this verse. It's phenomenal, isn't it? A few of them, quite a number of them are mentioned in this chapter. Let me just show you a few And then you could think of thousands of others, I'm sure. But in verse 1, one of the all things that comes to us along with Jesus is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's forgiveness of sin. We're not only um, granted heaven, but we're guaranteed that God will never bring our sins back up again. He will never condemn us for our sins in Jesus. That's good, isn't it? And then there's verse 18 where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about heaven. That's one of the blessings that comes along with Jesus, the glory that's to be revealed to us. And then what about verse 26 where we're told that the Spirit helps us in our weakness? He goes on to say that he helps us to pray and so on. What a gift that we not only have Jesus, we not only have forgiveness of sins, we not only have eternal life so that our future is secure, but we have the Holy Spirit who comes to be with us here and to help us, to teach us. It's part of the all things in verse 32. And then there's verse 29 where we're told that we are going to become conformed to the image of God's Son. If we know Jesus, we will become like Jesus. Isn't that wonderful to know? Part of the distress of the Christian life, part of the thing that causes us to worry and to fret is our own sin. We look at ourselves and we think, why did I do that? Again, for the seventh time, I did it again. But here's the promise that someday we are going to finish this process of becoming like Jesus and we will sin no more when we finally get to be with him 
in heaven. And again, there are an infinite number of other blessings that we can put under the category of all things here in verse 32. And yet, what I want to say to you is that verse 32 is not mainly about blessings. It mentions blessings, all things. It is blessing. But the verse is not mainly about the blessings. The verse doesn't mention any of the specific blessings that I've been throwing out as examples. The verse actually talks more about God than it does about his blessings. And that's important to remember. It's not just about what we get from God. The verse is about God and what he's like, his faithfulness, his goodness. So the verse is, yes, about what God gives to us. It's about gifts, but it's more about the giver of those gifts. Just reread it again with me and, and notice, he, it's about he, that's the, that's the subject of the sentence. Not the blessings, but the one who gives them. He, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he, not also with him, freely give us all things? God is the actor. He's the subject in this verse. It's a verse about God. And this verse, if we look at it carefully, has marvelous things to teach us about this God that we've been singing about this morning, that we've been reading about this morning, his faithfulness, the fact that he's a foundation for us. Marvelous things about what he's like how he operates, the way he thinks, and so on. And so we're just going to spend our time this morning noticing a few things, four things, in fact, that this verse teaches us about God. Four things. The first one is simply this, the gift of God. The gift of God. Now, of course, we already mentioned that this verse promises lots of gifts, right? He'll freely give us all things, anything that we need. So we could say the gift of God or, or the gifts of God are all these blessings that he gives us. But what is the gift of God in this verse? It's not the all things, it's his son, right? That's, that's the main thing. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over, gave him over for us all. So the gift, the main gift is his son, Jesus. He gave Jesus to us. And I want to just consider the costliness of that. First, just simply think about what it meant that God gave us his, his son, his one and only son. Most of us don't like to give our children away. None of us want to give our children away, do we? You watch parents sometimes at a college dorm, and you think of the, some of you are laughing like you maybe do want to give your children away. <laughs> but deep down... When you get to the college dorm, you'll find yourself holding back tears, won't you? Or when you find yourself, ladies, sitting on the front pew at the wedding service, or men standing in front of the pastor at the front of the aisle and putting her hand into this young man's hand, that who knows what he's going to turn out to be like, you'll understand. And some of you do understand. We don't want to give our children away. Or I was at the airport in Frankfurt last Saturday. Um, and I watched a family, a young girl uh, was evidently getting on a plane to go somewhere, and she wasn't just, you know, flying up to Berlin and coming back. She was evidently going somewhere where she was going to be gone for a long time, it seemed, and her sister it, it was there, it looked like, and then her parents, and they were hugging, and then they were re-hugging, and then they were going around and talking to each other again, and then re-hugging. It was a wonderful scene of what it's like for a parent to love their child. You don't want to give your child away. But that's what God did. Isn't that what the verse says? God didn't keep his son with him in heaven. He sent his son 
from heaven to earth. And I'll tell you, that's a lot further away than sending your child away to college or than sending them away even to be a missionary in China. God sent his son from the perfection of heaven to the sinfulness of earth so far away. And that's an amazingly costly gift, isn't it? To give away your child. But then second, even more costly because of the way that Paul phrases that giving away. He doesn't just say he gave his son. That's true. John 3.16 uses that phraseology. God so loved the world that he gave his son. But, but Paul uses an even stronger word here. It's not just that he gave his son, but that he delivered him over. He delivered him over. He handed him over. So this is not God sending his son away to college or giving his daughter away in marriage or sending his grandchildren away to China. This is not even God like a parent in the surgery waiting room at Children's Hospital, handing their child over to the doctor and hoping that the result's going to be good, believing that it probably will be good, not being quite sure. This is God actually delivering, handing his son over, and the the way that it's phrased is he's giving him over because he knows he's going to die. And that's what makes, again, the gift so costly. God gave his son over to certain death. He sent him into the world knowing that he would come into the world and that the prophecies, as Jesus said at the end of Luke 24, must be fulfilled and the Son of Man must be handed over to sinful men and be mocked and scourged and crucified. God delivered him over to that fate. It's not just that he allowed his son to go and die, but that he intentionally designed the plan so that he would hand him over. To that fate. An incredibly costly gift. And we, we hear the same thing in Isaiah 53.10 where we're told that God was actually the one who was pleased that Jesus should be bruised for our transgressions. God did that on purpose. It's not that God sent his son, hoped things would turn out well, and things really flipped on their heads and Jesus was crucified. God was pleased to send his son into the world. It was God's predetermined plan, Peter says in Acts 2, that his son should come and suffer and die. So it wasn't an accident. It wasn't that God's hand was forced and he said, well, the only thing I have left to do is to send Jesus to die. No, it was God's plan. He loved his son and yet he deliberately delivered him over, handed him over for us all. That's the gift of God, the gift. Among all the other gifts, this is the gift, such that if we had no other gift from God, if God never gave us anything else but his son to live sinlessly on our behalf and to die the death that our sins require and to rise from the dead on the third day, it would be enough, wouldn't it? It's a very costly gift. The question is, why did he do it? You and I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't give my child over to die on someone else's behalf. Why did God do that? Well, there's a hint when we're told that he delivered him over for us all. And that leads us to the second point, the second thing we learn about God. The gift of God is his son. But that phrase for us all points us secondly to the justice of God. The justice of God. What does it mean that God delivered Jesus over for us? Well, the rest of the Bible tells us. The reason why Jesus had to be delivered over for us is because we actually deserved to be delivered over, didn't we? 
By all rights, God should have taken us and delivered us over to someone like Pilate and said, pour out judgment upon them for their sins. We're the ones who deserve to be delivered over, aren't we? But we're not delivered over. Here we are, happy, air conditioning, hearing God's word, enjoying our families, enjoying the beautiful sunshine. We're not delivered over. We're not given to the fate that we ought to be given to. And why not? Well, because God's a pushover, right? No. It's not that we're here and we're alive and we're well and we have the promise of heaven because God is a pushover and he just says, well, don't worry about sin. And we're not even safe and happy and forgiven just because of God's mercy. It is God's mercy that we're happy and we're forgiven, but it's also his justice. We are not delivered over to the fate that we deserve because Jesus was delivered over for us all. God is just. God must punish sin. God cannot just wink at sin and pretend like, well, I made this world and I created it good and I told you how to live in it and keep it safe and healthy and happy and for you to be holy, but you didn't do it and it's okay. That's not what God's like, is it? He must punish sin. And the cross is a picture. It's a picture of God's mercy toward us that he wants to forgive sinners, but it's a picture of his commitment to punish sin. God hates sin, and he must punish it. And so when we think about Jesus hanging there on the cross, eating, dying, suffocating in his own bodily fluid for our sins, what we are looking at is a picture of what God thinks about sin. We're looking at a picture of what sin deserves, aren't we? We're looking at the justice of God. Jesus was delivered over in our place. So when we see how he was delivered over to be mocked and scourged and crucified, we see what God thinks about sin, our sin. We see the justice of God in this verse. Someone had to pay the penalty. We should remember that when we're tempted to sin, shouldn't we? When you're tempted to sin, and you know this happens to you, you know that something isn't what you should do, but you find yourself saying, "Uh, maybe it'll be okay. You should remember the cross and what Jesus went through and what God thinks about sin, even the smallest sin. We often find ourselves sometimes, don't we, wavering on the fence about what we're going to do. Are we going to obey God or are we not? And sometimes we think about God's mercy and we say, well, if I do it, God will forgive me. And that's true. But we also ought to think about what God really thinks about sin. If we love God and we understand what he thinks about sin and his justice toward it, even though that justice is not poured out on us, but is poured out on Jesus, it ought to make us think twice and three times and even more and to go back and to turn from the temptation. The cross The delivering over of God's Son teaches us the justice of God, his attitude towards sin. But then, on a happier note, thirdly, it teaches us about the love of God, doesn't it? This verse is about the justice of God, the cross of Jesus, him being delivered over, is about God's commitment to punish sin, but it's also, even more amazingly, about the love of God. In in other words, the phrase, for us all, has two implications. On the one hand, as we've been saying, Jesus was delivered over for us in our place because of our sin. He deserved what we got. But on the other hand, the phrase for us all means that God is on our side, doesn't it? 
God is for us. He's for us so much that he gave his own son in our place. And so there's a, a, a two sides to this phrase, for us all. There's the bad side. Boy, look at what had to happen for me to be forgiven. But there's the amazing side. Look at what did happen. Look at how much God must love me. He did something that was incredibly difficult. He did the most difficult thing anyone ever had to do. Did you think about that? The most difficult thing anyone has ever had to do in the history of the universe is what God did when he sent his son to die for us. Nothing harder than that. His own son. Now, it's hard enough to give away, as we were saying, to give away your daughter in marriage, send away your child to college. I'm not looking forward to those times. But to give your child to die... How difficult, how challenging, how sacrificial. And then to be the one who actually hands the child over, because that's what it says, isn't it? It's amazing that God did that for us, that he knowingly handed his son, his only son, over for us. Sometimes I think of parents who send their children away to war, especially in older times when going away to war meant that you are a lot more likely to be killed than than today. It's dangerous today, but in World War II, even more dangerous in World War I, even more likely that you would die during the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, and yet parents sent their sons off to war with very high percentages that they would never see them again. And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? An amazing sacrifice that they made. But even that's not quite the same, is it? Those parents had hope that their sons would return. God sent his son knowing that he would die. And, and those parents don't actually deliver their sons over to die, right? They deliver their sons over to fight and maybe to die. But they're actually, if they could, they would go to the general or to the commander in charge of the force and say, would you please pull my son back from the front lines? Wouldn't they? Some of you have had children in the military or who've had relatives in the military. If the parents could, they would, they would call up the cell phone of the commander and say, put my son in the back. You know, make him the clerk. Put him in the, the medical team. Don't send him to the front lines. But that's not what God did. God sent his son and said, I'm not just sending him thinking he might die, hoping he won't and that things will still turn out well. I'm going to send him knowing that he's going to die. And then think about this. Parents send their children away like that to die for their country, to die for something so much greater than themselves, right? And that's a noble thing if the country is a noble country, to send your son or your daughter and to have them give their life for something so much greater than themselves. That's not what God did when he sent his son, is it? God didn't send his son to die for something greater. God sent his son to die for something far less than himself, for something far less valuable. You put all of the 7 billion people in the world today and all of the 2 or 3 billion people who have lived in the world previously, put them all together and all the good things and all the wonderful things and none of that all added together compares with the value of God's son, does it? Doesn't the Bible say that we... Even the nations, not just us individuals, but the nations are like a drop in the bucket compared to God. And not only that, but we little drops in the bucket thumb our noses at God, turn our backs on God all the time. 
So when God sent Jesus, it wasn't just he's going to die for some great cause. No, he's going to die for a bunch of little people who are desperately in need of God and still turn their backs on him. Isn't that amazing? God sent his son to die for people who had no right at all to expect it. Not for some great cause, but for little drops in the bucket, sinful drops in the bucket. And here's the thing. What does that say about God? That he would hand his son over to die for insignificant little sinners like me and like you. What does it say? Either it says he hates his son and doesn't value his life at all, or it says that he loves sinners. Which one is it? God doesn't hate his son. God loves sinners so much that he would give something far more valuable than they to redeem them from their sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I've given you this quote before. I give it to you again this morning. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor in South Carolina, says, thinking about God delivering his son over for us all, we would almost think that God loves us more than he loves his son. And we know that that's not true. But for him to give his son for me, for you, it's amazing. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. There's nothing in humanity that compares to this. There's no illustration that we can give of someone giving something up or giving even their child up that comes close to this. People give their children up all the time, but nothing like this. God gave his son for sinners, and he must therefore love sinners. And if he loves sinners that much, there are some practical implications. And that's really what this verse is about. We come to this final point, and we really get to the heart of it. We're thinking about God, and we see the gift of God. And we see that that gift was given because of the justice of God, but also the love of God. And then Paul makes this astounding practical application from that gift and that justice and that love. And so we'll call this fourth point the logic of God. We see the gift of God, we see the justice of God, we see the love of God, but we see the logic of God in this verse as well. Did you notice the logic? It goes like this. A, God gave his very own son for us. And B, he did so for people who actually deserved to be given over to death themselves. And therefore, see, he must really love those people. Now, let me rehearse that before we get to D. A, God gave his son, his very own son, for us. B, for people who didn't deserve it, but who actually deserved the fate that Jesus absorbed on the cross. And therefore, see, God must really love these people. And D, if he loves these people, enough to give his son over for them all, then surely he will give them everything else that they need. Isn't that what Paul says? That's the logic of the verse. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us 
all things. That's the logic. If God would give us his very best, the most valuable thing in the universe, the most valuable thing that any of us could ever possess, our children, if God would give his son, and his son so much more valuable than any son or daughter that you and I could ever have, if he would do that, then surely he'll give us all the things that are far less costly, won't he? If he'll spend all of this credit giving us his son, then surely he won't withhold all the small things that we need. That's logical, isn't it? And Paul says that's the logic of God. That's the logic of the verse. Now, again, to put it in a, in a picture for us, think of it like this. If a man is willing to pay for his son to go to Harvard, then surely he's not going to quibble with him over when he needs a few hundred dollars for books, right? If a husband and wife are willing to buy their daughter this magnificent wedding dress, then surely they're not going to skimp out on the bouquet, right? If you're willing to get the big thing, to spend the big money, to give the big gift, that kind of person who's willing to do that and to invest that way is surely going to take care of the small things, right? And how much more with this gift? Harvard or Jesus? Wedding dress or Jesus? There's nothing that compares with this gift. And so if God would give us this gift, his son, if he wouldn't withhold his son then surely he wouldn't withhold anything else that we would ever possibly need. It doesn't say that he'll give us everything that we ever want, but everything that we would ever need, surely he won't keep it from us. That's the logic of this verse. But sometimes some of us, actually sometimes all of us, don't believe the logic of this verse. Or at least we put it to the back of our minds, don't we? Sometimes we look at God as though maybe he's not going to actually come through this time. As though maybe things aren't going to quite work out. We would never call God stingy, but sometimes we forget what this verse teaches and we start to live as though God might be a little bit close-fisted with us. As though God might not really come through. And so we begin to fret. We begin to worry. We begin to scheme. Sometimes we get, begin to be dishonest because we've got to try to make it work. And when we fret and when we scheme and when we worry and when we try to cheat our way into what we think we need, what we're actually doing is saying, God, I don't believe Romans 8.32. I know you promised to give us all things. I know you proved that you're willing to give us everything we need by giving us the best thing, the most costly thing, your son. But somehow in this situation, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills this month and if you're going to come through for me. I just don't know if this whole job thing is going to work out. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to do what I need to do at school. I just don't know if you're going to really take care of my health and meet my needs. Do you ever think like that? I do. I find myself all the time worrying about if it's going to work. And, of course, it very rarely works out the way I think it's going to work. But God takes care of me. And God takes care of you. So why do we worry? God loves us. God loves you, even in your sin. He loves you. He gave his very best for you. His son. His own son. Not just to come into the world and then come back, but to come into the world and to suffer and to die for us all. He loves us. And if he would give us that, then surely he'll give us everything else we need. So would you trust him? Would you this week, when something tempts you to worry, 
Would you trust him? Would you stop worrying? Would you, when you're tempted to think that things might just not turn out and that all hope in this given situation might be lost, would you remember Romans 8.32? And more than remembering Romans 8.32, would you just remember Jesus dying on the cross for you? And would you tell yourself, it, this makes no sense. Here I am fretting, worrying, scurrying around, getting all frustrated. Makes no sense. God gave his son. Surely God will give me everything else that I need. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things?